Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. So would you say that that's kind of like the lightning bolt moment for you? And that's what I taught myself how to draw, was actually the Little Mermaid, drawing stills of Ariel. I've got better things to do tonight than die. jumped out of his chair and said, who the F is this? I remember walking out of the theater and saying, I'm going to write Halloween I'm rather impressed with your research. Rarely do people ask me about children in the corner. It doesn't have to be perfect, just do it. You know, throw some spaghetti against the wall. This is George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. This is George Soroy. Thank you so much for being here. It's almost 150 episodes. We are still going strong. We are not stopping anytime soon. And I want to take a quick moment just to say thank you to the Friends Talking Nerdy Podcast Network for allowing Excelsior Journeys to be a part of that network. I'm so looking forward to working with you guys. And I also hope that uh, if you are in the St. Louis area, I will see you over at Fan Expo STL for the weekend of May 13th through 15th. This month is dedicated purely to writers, and I couldn't think of a better way to start off this month's uh, series of conversations. 50 years ago, around this time, we were introduced to a gentleman by the name of John Rambo. Uh, 40 years ago, we got to see him on the big screen, and now we get to hear from the man who brought him to us in the first place. And it is my pleasure and my honor to introduce David Morell. David, how are you, sir? I'm fine, thank you. As we discussed this before we started, we're both healthy, which is the best part. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, fifty years of John Rambo, and it's all be, and it's all from it's all from you. So, before we jump into go to like the your own origin story and everything, how does it feel? 50 years later. Well, a few years ago, I did a 50th anniversary introduction to Ira Levin's Rosemary's Baby. Oh, wow. Um, publisher kindly asked me to, to do that. And I remember as I was doing the research on Ira, a, a fine writer, and just admiring the accomplishment of a book that was 50 years old and still in print and getting a new edition. And I thought, boy, that's really something. And it hadn't occurred to me, of course, that First Blood was coming up. And and uh, so here, three, four years later, I, I met you, you and I are able to talk about this. And uh, it's, it's, it's pretty wonderful because the book has never been out of print. Mm-hmm. You can have a book that's 50 years old, uh, and that's a question of longevity. But the fact that it remains in print, there was a new hardback edition four or five years ago and the new paperback edition, what, four years ago. Mm-hmm. And this year I signed uh, contracts for uh, several new editions in uh, Europe. So it, it's, it, it keeps going and all told it's more than 30 languages. And I mean, it's really a hoot given the fact that I spent three years writing the book and I'm not talking about dreaming out into space. I mean, working on the book every day and giving up on a couple of occasions. It was my first novel and I, w- I was learning. So mostly when I when I think about this and I look back, I, I think of those three years and how somehow I, I just kept going. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's that's just amazing. Like to, to see that over in 30 languages, you said, right? Yes. That's wow. And and then obviously to have the character himself live on in on his on his own in the series of films as yes. well. 
and, and, the, and the cartoon series. Don't the cartoon, the cartoon series. series. I will. I will never forget that cartoon <laughs> series. Like, <laughs> I gotta ask right before we right before we go to the to the origin. Yeah. What are your thoughts, knowing knowing his origins, knowing John yeah. Randall's origins, knowing where he was, knowing the kind of man that he was in the novel, yeah. and how it ended. You know, like in in the novel, and supposedly like that would have been his story right then and there. Yes. But to to see him suddenly. You know, like being presented to Saturday morning cartoons? Yeah, yeah. What were your thoughts there? Well, whenever I sign, not always, but most of the time, when I sign copies of First Blood, people find it amusing that I say best wishes from Rambos because it's a little bit like having, you know, an offspring and then having that offspring grow up and go off. And I mean, who the heck knows how their children are going to turn out? So it's certainly been unusual. I, I assume we eventually will talk about it because character in the novel is somewhat different from that in the first movie and the mm-hmm. character in two and three is different from the first movie and from my novel oh yeah and character in four goes back to my novel Sly himself told me that and, and the fifth one who the hell knows i mean that's <laughs> that's so strange that you yeah. know yeah. yeah, it seemed like that moment right at the end of the 2008 film when he's walking down the street to his father's home, yes. it would have been just like, okay, there it is. He's made his journey home. Rambo's story is told, and but apparently there was a little bit more left to squeeze out of there, I guess. Well, it was. It would have been a, a, a great ending. Yeah, so let's go, let's go back to, there's, there's something that I call the lightning bolt moment, and that's that mm. moment where you experience something, see something, read something, hear something, or mm. meet someone and say, that's the kind of journey I want to be on. Yes. What, what was it with writing with you in the first place? Well, the, uh, I teach writing on occasion, and I often quote from uh, Graham Greene, who said that an unhappy childhood is a goldmine for a writer. <laughs> um, I mean, the theory is, for some writers at least, certainly myself, that stuff happened, and in a way, we're writing it out in story form. Yeah. And my father had, I'm old enough to have had a father who was in World War II, and he died uh, he was a British air pilot for the Navy, mm-hmm. and his job was to fly over France uh, during D-Day operations and tell the British ships where the shells were landing so they could adjust the trajectory of their barrels. Mm-hmm. And he was shot down, and, and so I never, I never knew him. And my mother was unable to, to really take care of me and, 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 and earn a living, so I was in an orphanage, and then I was on a Mennonite farm for a while, oh, wow. and then my mother remarried, but he didn't like children, and they fought a lot, and I slept under the bed. So I had a lot of things going on, and the, I'm really fond of telling this story because my life has been one of foster fathers, and uh, there was a TV show in 1960s to 64 called Route 66, mm-hmm. and it was about two young men in a Corvette convertible traveling across the United States in search of America and in search of themselves. It was the tagline for the series. Right. And it was filmed entirely on location across the United States. No other series has ever done this. And most of the episodes were written by a man with a distinctive name, Sterling Silifont. Oh. And, yeah. and I became fascinated when I saw that name pop up and the myth of those two guys in the convertible Corvette that was and one of the characters. It was a street kid kept talking about busting out. And I really wanted to bust out. So I wrote Sterling a letter saying that I wanted to be him. It was interesting. I didn't want to be the actors. 
-hmm. I wanted to be the guy that was moving me so much. And he wrote back and I still have the letter framed next to my desk and changed my life. So from then on, I I determined to be, uh, and the, the, in terms of first blood itself, I was, it's very difficult to earn a living as an author. And so I was, by that time, I'd immigrated to the United States. I'm now a citizen. And I was at Penn State in graduate school where I met my first professional writer. I'd never met Sterling yet. But my first professional writer, uh, Philip Class, whose pen name was William Ten, and he was a science fiction writer. He changed the genre with, with something called comic science fiction, but very powerful stuff. And he was good enough to take me under my wing. So I, I was prepped. And in 1968, a uh, long time ago, at the height of the Vietnam War, although it would get higher or lower, depending on how you look at it, I was watching the CBS Evening News and Walter Cronkite, who was then the had footage of a firefight in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, then he followed it with a footage of riots in the United States. And it's really important to emphasize how many riots there were in the United States in 1968 mm-hmm. because of the Vietnam War, because of the Civil Rights Movement, because of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, Robert Kennedy Jr.'s assassination. There weren't 50 riots. There weren't 100 riots. There weren't 150 riots. There were 200 riots. There were riots, riots, riots. Some cities in the United States, inner cities of of Detroit, inner city of Los Angeles, Gary, Indiana, and others are still recovering. And so the, the, the penny dropped, so to speak, that I said, it's like the war came home. Mm. And it was at that point that I decided to write a novel with all that power of Sterling Siliphant behind me. Yeah. Uh, to write a novel in which uh, someone embittered by the very important to understand this novel was begun in 68, embittered by the war and what he had learned about himself in combat that he was good at killing. Yeah. And that and, and wandered America to find out what he'd been fighting for, only to have this confrontation with a police officer. Now, of course, these days, I mean, it's still a hot topic, right? In right. terms of how do we relate to to police officers maintaining order? And and in those days, if you had long hair and if you had a beard, or your your listeners can't see me, but I've had a mustache that I grew as a method acting thing. Mm-hmm. I still have because my wife refuses to have me. It's the only thing <laughs> she knows me. Yeah. Should I be a stranger? But I grew the mustache in '68 to see how people react to me and every person of authority reacted negatively made insulting comments threatening comments uh, to this day i have trouble with authority figures because of that mm. so at the time that would have been a believable and worthwhile uh, a syndrome in the united states it's nowhere near what it is now in, 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 in order to to try to understand what was happening so that was basically what i wanted to do wow Wow. And I remember you were talking a lot about the there's a there's a, an amazing documentary actually on the, the Rambo four movie collection that talks about the that talks about the inspiration 
for Rambo, which yeah. I thought was I thought was terrific. Can you tell? Can you share my listeners, sure. my listeners a little bit about yeah, that? There have been a lot of real life people erroneously who said, "Oh, I was I was the origin of Rambo," and they they don't seem to get it that I started a book in 1968, and they're reacting to the movies in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, the origin for the character is America's most decorated soldier of World War II, Audie Murphy, mm. who in my time growing up in the 50s was a very well-known figure. He'd come, he'd, 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 he, it was, it's astonishing to read his book about, he called to Helen back about what he experienced in the war and how modestly he talks about it. Mm-hmm. And then look at his citation for the Medal of Honor which makes whatever Rambo does in the movies look like nothing. Mm. Audie Murphy was simply in terms of combat, it's unbelievable what he, what he almost alone was able to do. Yeah. But when he came back from the war, he had difficulty, let us put it that way, adjusting to peacetime. And he said that he, he had plans to write a second book about what it was like to come back to America in peacetime, but he died before that book was ever written, if mm. he ever truly wanted to write one. But Audie Murphy had what we now recognize as PTSD, but there was no term for that. The term really starts along about the mid-80s when it got uh, a really uh, wide circulation, post-traumatic stress disorder. They, they called it shell shock, or there were a lot of synonyms, but Audie was really tortured by what had happened to him in the war. Mm-hmm. And people who, who knew him say that there were things going on in his eyes. One of my the stories, he was on a set. Uh, he, I should get ahead. Of, I'm getting ahead of myself. He became a star of cowboy movies. Mm. And if you see these cowboy movies, the best one is uh, No Name on, on the Bullet. But he also made some big, these were just generally modestly budgeted universal movies. But he did make a couple of big budget, The Red Badge of Courage with John Huston and The Unforgiven, again, with Huston directing. And it, it, in the action scenes, you can see his eyes go someplace that are mm. pretty scary. And he was arrested for attempted murder. For He carried a weapon and he pistol whipped a dog trainer for what he claimed was overcharging a friend of his to charge it, to, to ch- train a dog. He was known when he kept the pistol under his, in his pillow and he woke up often from nightmares shooting. And the it, it, it's a sad, it's a sad life. And now maybe he could have been helped in some ways. And so I got to thinking about what if Ani Murphy came back from Vietnam? And what mm. if he grew a beard and long hair? Mm. <laughs> and what if a police officer arrested him and took him to, and, and the, the incident is based on something happened in the in the American Southwest at the time. A group of hippies uh, who were who law enforcement hated, and they were they were going through this. I, I never, I cannot, I have it in my files, but I cannot remember the name of the city. Mm-hmm. And they were arrested, and they were taken to jail. They were stripped. They were showered, not quite as brutally as in First Blood, and then they were shaved, and uh, their hair was cut off. And then wow. they were told to get out of town and not come back. And they, they trudged off down the highway. So I thought, what if that were Audie Murphy? Mm. And so that was the jail scene. Mm. 
Yeah. And in the move in the book, they don't quite, he has a beard and he has long hair that, that one of the, the, the things in the, in the movie, Ron Dennehy, a great gifted actor. He didn't have much to work with in the script, but he made, he did what he could with it. And, and he's so effective with what people do with when they don't have the words in the script. Yeah. And, but he says to Rambo, we don't like guys who look like you coming through our town. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Mm-hmm. And in 1982 in 1972, those would have been true words. Mm-hmm. But in 1982, most of the men in the audience had grown long hair and had facial hair of some kind. Mm-hmm. So they were looking at each other. I remember I snuck into uh, the premiere just to, in the back, just to get a reaction. And, and, and men were actually turning to one another and saying, well, what's wrong with the way he looks? Because mm. Sly looked like every man in the audience. And I yeah. thought, oh boy, are we, is this movie in trouble? Because they're not going to buy the inherent prejudice that mm-hmm. the movie was based on. Yeah. But once they get into the jail and once all the great Jerry Goldsmith music starts mm-hmm. and once they bring out, the, let's say, hose him down and once they get out the razor, well, by then they forgot. The, yeah. the men in the audience had forgot that basically Rambo looks ordinary uh, yeah. by, by 82 standards. But so in the novel, he escapes. He's still got his beard. He's still got his long hair, but he's stark naked. And he gets that motorcycle, and in two to three hours up in the mountains, he is re-equipped. Mm-hmm. Whereas now we, it would have been unrealistic to expect that any censor would have allowed Sly to run naked out of the, of the jail and hop on the motorcycle. And so I don't mind that. I'm not complaining. Right. But it's sort of you know interesting to compare the culture of 1972 and how swiftly it had changed by 1982. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And that's, that really was just like, I mean, I, you know, just will, will always love that, uh, that Jerry Goldsmith score as well. Like that was, that was really something. It was just like building and building and building. It was great. So you're writing the book and everything it's coming together. When did you realize that like that you really had something as it was coming along? Well, I, I didn't, you have to look at action books in the 1960s, 1970s. And they're typified by an expression that drives me nuts. When you read action books and they say a shot rings, shots do not ring out. Bells ring out, right? I mean, it's it's a joke. It's a pulp expression that somehow has survived. And it drives me crazy. And I I mean, I'm getting angry here even thinking about it. Uh And I see it again and again and again still today. And what I was trying to do, because remember, I was in, I was... I was coming out of Sterling Silfont's work, which was action oriented with ideas. Yeah. And, and there's Sterling did in the heat of the night. He adapted John Ball's novel in the heat of the night, mm-hmm. where we have a, again, a police officer, a stranger comes to town scenario with Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was the gold standard for what writing could be that it was, it had, it had importance. It was about something, but it was also very exciting. And, and so that was my goal. And I was doing my master's thesis. It's often amusing for some people to, to realize that the creator of Rambo has a PhD in American literature and was a full professor at a Big Ten university mm-hmm. for a number of years. Because they, and, and I was trying to put all that in the book. 
Yeah. And one of what I was looking for was, could I find a new way to write to get rid of all the, the shots rang out? And I'm reading, I'm studying Hemingway. And from a certain point of view, Hemingway is an action writer. Yeah, Farewell to Arms, for whom the bell tolls, do great war novels. To have and have not, a, gang, a gangster uh, a novel. And I've got to go back. But Farewell to Arms, for whom the bell tolls, and to have and have not. And, and I was looking at it, and nobody had written action like that. And I said, well, I don't write like Hemingway. Way, but can I use that as my goal? Mm-hmm. So in the novel, during the fight in the in the in this the police station, Rambo slices someone, a deputy, with the razor. Mm-hmm. And the guy looks down and he 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 sees what seems to be an inner tube from a slash bicycle tire coming out. And he starts to poke the inner tube back in. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, was where the change occurred. And that's one reason why the novel is sometimes called the father of modern action novels, mm. because it tried to get to make it viscerally vivid. So I went yeah. to my agent with the book, and it turned out that my agent was my, my Philip Class, William Ten, introduced me to the agent, Henry Morrison. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I got to jump over a hurdle because it's real hard to get an agent. And and he liked the book a lot, but he said, action books, there's no market for them. I might be able to get you a paperback. So fine, let's try it. Well, it turned out that it was a hardback. And it turned out that every major, it was the right year for the Vietnam War and this topic. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't set in Vietnam. It was set in the United States, but the it's about Vietnam. Yeah, there's Viet- every- Vietnam just kind of like hanging over it, like the whole yes, time. Yeah, exactly. And every major, for a first novel, unheard of. Every major reviewing outlet, Time, Newsweek, Life, a lot of these magazines no longer exist. Saturday Review, New York Times, Washington Post, and on and on and on and on reviewed the thing. It was amazing. And, and one... The only bad review was with Time Magazine, who called the novel Carnography, the meat novel, the equivalent in action of pornography. Oh. And, and, but, but the, he disapproved, but he got the point. Yeah. Which was that I was trying to change the way action was written. And I think that's why the book's still in print today. So it was a, an uphill battle. Three years with constant doubts at my agent saying, well, maybe I can get you a paperback. And then all this other stuff happening. And then within almost immediately a movie sale. Wow. And it's funny that you say that it came out in 1972, because it also kind of reminds me of something else that came out in 1972, which is completely disengaged from your work. But it was the Wes Craven's horror film, Last House on the Left. And they were going for the same sort of visceral element for yes. that genre. Yeah. So it's so it's weird. Yeah. 1972. That really was like a, a time where things were really kind of changing toward that extra element of not so much of like visceral for visceral sake, but visceral to really kind of state a point for what, for what's going on and not to, not to romanticize everything well, that's and, going on. And my friend, Stephen King published, if my memory serves, Carrie in 1973. And so he, and Steve and I, we haven't seen each other in years, but at one time we were very, very close. In fact, when he taught creative writing at the University of Maine, First Blood was his text. And no the, kidding. The, 
the, but well, it's like we were trying to do the same thing. Well, I was trying to do an action, what he was doing in, in horror. And yeah, it was, it, it was, and the same thing was happening in movies. If you look at the 1970s and all the really interesting, independent, unusual, fresh approaches that filmmakers were taking. So it was, it was a, a, certainly a very creative time. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of weird, like how, as, like as soon as, one big thing happens like five years down the road, like in the case of like science fiction, all the different things that they were doing throughout the seventies that had all these wonderful elements of satire. And then all of a sudden in 1977, out comes star Wars and everyone all of a sudden wants to do that. And I'm not denigrating star Wars in any way. It's what part of, part of what made me who I am. So it's, but at the same time, like those, those sort of things, like getting that story out, getting first blood out, it's all about timing. So much yep. of it is timing. And Jaws uh, was in that period as well. Yep. 75. That's when the movie came out as well. Wonderful so, film. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the Benchley novel, was that also 72, 73 or so? It would have been in there. Uh, the, the not, not to not Benchley, but the, the Jaws is the superior form of the story, the, the film. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. There are digressions in the novel, which one perhaps wishes hadn't, weren't there because they mute the forward you know, motion of the story. But mm-hmm. I mean, you know, originality gets its own A plus. So, but if it's interesting, if we look at The Godfather, which improves yep. on the novel. Also 72. Uh, yep. And the, and Jaws improving on the novel. And it doesn't always happen that way. So it's, it was an interesting time. And again, I'm not knocking Puzo, not knocking Benchley. We're simply talking mm-hmm. about adaptations and how one form is perhaps more suited uh, than another to telling a story. Now it took, now it took 10 years to go from, from book to the screen. Were there like a lot of different twists and turns along the way, trying to get the right sort of people attached to it? The the story w- uh, was purchased by Columbia Pictures, the mm-hmm. the novel, the film, and not optioned. When you, you they're in the movie business, you can option something, which means somebody gets to try to make a movie, maybe in a year and a half or something. And if they don't, the author keeps the money and gets the rights back. Mm-hmm. But in this case, Columbia purchased the the rights outright for Richard Brooks to write and direct. And well, no, Brooks, these days, people don't have, a lot of people don't have a film memory, but Brooks is a major, major figure in Cold Blood, Elmer Gantry, one of my favorite Westerns, The Professionals. Mm-hmm. And he, he wanted to do this. And it's unclear what happened. He worked on it for a year. And then Columbia sold the rights to Warner Brothers. And there were a lot of rumors about who might have worked on it there? I heard this is a rumor. Uh, I'm going to tell you a fact in a moment. But the rumor was that Martin Ritt was going to direct with Paul Newman playing the sheriff, playing the, 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 the law enforcement guy. And, but what is absolutely true is that Sidney Pollock, again, one of my favorite directors, Sidney himself told me this, sort of a Richard Brooks, Sidney's books, a movie. Movies and Richard's uh, Brooks's movies look that have they have that big studio gloss to them. I mean, they're just movie movies. Yeah. And and Sydney had done in cold. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, in, in, in Africa and and uh, Three Days of the Condor. When he did many later ones, but he was going to direct with Steve McQueen in the film because and this time Steve playing Rambo because of the motorcycle. Story. However, as Sydney said, about six months before they were ready to go, 
they realized that Steve was in his mid-40s. And unlike the American military now and what the service personnel who were saying in Iraq, the, which tended to be often in their 30s, 40s. And I was with the USO, the first USO authors tour to a war zone. I was in Iraq in 2010 and I met people in their 50s. Oh, wow. who, were, who were active service people. But in for the Vietnam War, those were 18, 19, and 20-year-old young men. Mm-hmm. And so by 1975, there were no mid-40s Vietnam veterans. Mm-hmm. So they realized that they had an inherent flaw in the setup. And so it died away, and, and there were many other options. The publisher named Gauntlet Press did some special editions of First Blood and my novelizations for two and three. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I wanted to add a lot of extras for people who were really serious about studying uh, the, the phenomenon of Rambo. And uh, in 1985, when the second movie came out, the Los Angeles Times published an essay by Pat Gresky called The Curious Evolution of John Rambo, in which she, she basically, a very long essay, had all the possible iterations, including, the, you know, the Richard Brooks, including the Sidney Pollock, Steve McQueen, and on and on and on, leading up to Carol Cohen and, and, and Sly being in it. And so if anybody cares, a few, these are they're only 500 copies, but they're signed and numbered. It's gauntlet pressed. And the, the essay is in the, in the Rambo First Blood Part Two limited edition. Oh, nice. Oh, that's so cool. So as it was going on, like as, as the eventual screenplay was coming out. What were your thoughts like regarding the different directions that they went in? Well, it then went Warner Brothers and sold it to somebody else. So it went to a third studio and then it went finally to a company called Carol Co. Now it's sometimes mm-hmm. pronounced Carol Co. Right. But I always, I was in their offices a lot and I always heard Carol Co. But so whatever, to, yeah. you know, tomato, tomato. Right. And two uh, wonderful guys, Andrew Banya and Mario Kassar. Yeah. I got to know them real well. Mar- Andy Morso. They had been distributing movies in the world. They knew movie distribution and they wanted to get into the worldwide distribution market and to do it by actually making a film that they would distribute overseas because in the United States, Until recently, the Paramount decree, the Paramount consent decree of 1948 forbade movie studios to distribute their own films for anti-monopoly reasons. You look a little puzzled, you know, that's worth a a digression. In In the 30s and 40s, studios owned their own theaters. And so if you were an independent, you couldn't get your movie into theaters. So in 1948, the Justice Department said this is not right, and they sued the studios, and the studios were forced to divest their their theaters. So to this, until now, until two years ago, I believe it was 2020, when the Justice Department allowed this to be rescinded, allowing studios to once again own theaters, which meant that Amazon and Netflix could Mm. own theaters. Wow. And I often wondered what the heck was going on there and what kind of arrangement, because the only people who could benefit from that really were Amazon and Netflix. But right. that's a different story. Yeah. Anyhow, Carol Coe, Andy and Mario said, uh, and they, they liked, 
they had some people they were working with, and my my mind suddenly went, "Who directed First Blood?" I, I, it's Ted, suddenly Ted Kotcheff. Ted Kotcheff. Yeah. Forgive me, Ted, and anybody here. I do know <laughs> this stuff, but every once in a while, anyhow, Ted. They liked Ted a lot. They were working with him, and they said. Ted, if you wanted to make a movie, what would it be? And he said, when I was at Warner Brothers, I worked on First Blood, and I really would like to do that. So by then, somehow, Warner's had the rights back. Mm-hmm. And and Carol Coe then went to Warner's and said, we'd like to buy the film rights from you, which happened. And there were like 26 scripts, but there was one by that they liked a lot, Michael Kozel and William Sackheim. And they showed they 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 wanted, they liked the idea of Sly being in it because he had a great overseas following. Mm-hmm. And, and they were thinking overseas, they were thinking global, not yeah. global, not US. Yeah. And so Sly it's he tells the story in many, many places. He liked the script, but he, he thought there were some items that could be improved for him. So he rewrote the script. So there are three writers on the script. And what primarily he added, uh, I have not taken the scripts side by side, but, but what he primarily added was uh, uh, the props. There is no knife in the novel, but there mm-hmm. is a knife in the movie. And mm-hmm. Sly was very interested in knives and he knew Jimmy Lyle. Who was the who was a noted life a knife maker and Sly had bought knives from him mm-hmm. and so one thing led to another and and that in turn revitalized the cutlery industry but that's mm-hmm. that's really that's another story but <laughs> the the so it was Ted talking to Andy and Mario who who goes back to Warner Brothers and they acquire the rights and the script which Sly rewrites and then off we go. Wow. And yeah, that definitely explains the size of the knives getting bigger and bigger as the movies <laughs> went on. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, it's so, well, what are you going to do? You gotta, you can't make them smaller. Right. Of course. Yeah. So, <laughs> so as, so you get to, so you you get to experiencing how Stallone was doing his take on John Rambo. And then you also mm. got to meet that you, you were, were you on set, you know, like during this or were you? Not, like, not for it. Not for the first one or the second one. The, that was, they were filming, First Blood was filmed in British Columbia okay. um, the, at, at, to pose for the Pacific Northwest. The, the money difference between the dollar and the Canadian dollar was, was favorable. Mm-hmm. And they were favorable terms to filmmakers if they used a lot of Canadian personnel making the movie. Gotcha. And I, I, ne- I never wondered because I, I, I retained my Canadian citizenship while at, I was not yet an American citizen when First Blood was made. So I never knew whether I was one of the, the, the little add-ons that allowed them to make it in Canada. Right. But and then they filmed in Acapulco for Rambo Two. But by then I was working on the novelization for Rambo Two, and I could not. The deadline on that was so severe that oh, yeah. I could not have gone away. I was in Israel and in Yuma, Arizona, for the filming of Rambo Three. Oh, nice. Now, were um, were the were any of the actors or anything reaching out to you to kind of get a little bit more insight into their characters? No. But that's Hollywood. I mean, in mo- most people in Hollywood, we would wish that the author vanished or was transported mm. to Mars. <laughs> the, 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 the movies are, by definition, a narcissistic medium. 
And, and so what you find is people who say, that's a great idea. And then, and then sort of wish it was there. And then, so until by 1988, when Rambo three came out, that had changed. So that I and Sly and Richard Crenna were the three people at the, film publicity junk promoting the film. Oh, nice. And that's because I was so, I'm a professor. I, I can talk literate, literately mm-hmm. about the book. And, and, but at, at the time, no, uh, although Andy would call me, I liked Andy a lot. He's no longer with, but I liked Andy a lot. He would phone and he'd say, Hey, we're doing this. Do you have a you? Is there a reason why given the story, we can't do this? He called me notably and said, we're going to move the novelist set in Kentucky. And, and they said, we're going to move it to the Pacific Northwest. Is now imagine a producer call, calling an author to ask this question. It's yeah. insane. It would, it never happens, but it's a sign of how smart Andy was. He said, is there a reason why the story will not allow us to transfer it from Kentucky to the Pacific Northwest? Oh, that's How beautiful. Smart. That How is smart. That's right? beautiful. That is so yes. beautiful. And that's, that, and I've that's never met, I never met Andy when he was with us, but man, I love that. I love that he took the time yeah. to do that. That shows so much respect. Well, or, mostly or, he was protecting the $17 million. Well, yeah. <laughs> which is what the picture cost. And, and I mean, he, he was smart enough to say, wait a minute, before we do all this, what if we get up there and we say, oh, my God, why didn't we think of this? So he was doing due diligence. And the answer, mm-hmm. my answer was, no, there's no reason why. I, for texture, a semi-Southern state would have been better mm-hmm. for my novel. Yeah. But for the movie and whatever you're going to do, there's no reason it can't be up there. So he said, great. Thanks a lot. And occasionally he would call me and we'd talk that way. Oh, that's great. That's great. Now, the now the, the original film, the, the film's original ending was similar to the to the book where yes. like where Rambo's story is like it begins and ends right then and there. What were your thoughts when they when that ending was changed and that he came out? of that like at the end of that with the with colonel troutman right well uh, i'm i've been i have i've been in the writers guild since what 1979 Mm -hmm. and but i've studied movies a lot and one thing i know is and we talked about this earlier movies are different from books Mm -hmm. and there are certain things that a movie can do that a book can't do and vice versa so i assumed there'd be differences I mentioned Stephen King earlier. Steve, after he saw the movie, said, I, you got treated about as well as a novelist can get treated because I actually recognized the story. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it's, it's an amazingly parallel plot. Yeah. There are a couple of major differences. The action is more intense in the novel. Mm-hmm. That's not a typo. The, the novel has more action. Oh, yeah. And uh, the character of the police officer is far more expanded in the novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I said about Brian earlier, doing such a great job with not a lot on the page in the, in the script. And then the, 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 the ending yeah. and the tone, because my Rambo is furious. And mm-hmm. the Rambo in First Blood, the movie, is a victim. Yeah. And, and Sly's wonderful kind of dear eyes. Oh, woe is me. I mean, he's, he uses his eyes, one of the great actors in terms of the way he uses his eyes, particularly his eyes. Yeah. So there, there were, I, I knew, I expected differences. Mm-hmm. And this, the story that I like to tell is that I had gone Brian, which was 
the distributor, again, based upon mm-hmm. our earlier conversation, Orion said, well, I guess you're going to have to see the movie. <laughs> I was at <laughs> Iowa City at the time teaching at the University of Iowa. They said, you can, we'll show it to you on Wednesday at two o'clock in this theater before it opens on Friday. And uh, my plan was to have a party. I'd have my friends come and I I'd pay for the popcorn and the sodas, and we'd just have some fun. Well, mm-hmm. Ryan said, no way. Every every blessed ticket matters to us. The <laughs> only people that can go and see that is your wife. And are, do you have any children? I said, I have two. Well, okay. Hum, ha. Okay, your kids can go, too. <laughs> I mean, it was such a joke, right. right? So we went. We saw it 2 o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon in October. And October is, used to be a bad month for opening a movie. Mm-hmm. And so we were overwhelmed. The only people in the theater, we had no, no reaction. It's like going to a comedy by yourself. Yeah. I mean, how do you sell? We saw the movie and we walked out kind of dazed on a big, big, big screen. And a friend of mine from the university phone said, what did you think? I said, I don't know. I don't know what to think. And he said, well, let's put it this way. Would you, if it was bad? And I said, oh, it's not bad. Oh, no, I know it's not bad. I yeah. just don't know. So I went, that's what I said earlier. I snuck back. The, the, the day it opened, the night it opened in Iowa City, and the the the, the manager of the theater had a, a seat that looked like it was under repair, you know, for me, and I snuck in and sat. And they went crazy. They were yelling and fighting, and the whole audience was, "Oh no, get him, get him!" I mean, they mm-hmm. were screaming at, at the. It, it was it was really wonderful, and I I knew then that this was going to be a big deal. And was the did the the film's release and success did that kind of spark some additional interest in the book? Like were sales just really kind of spiking from that? It it did and it didn't for the second for the first one it did but by this for the second and third films which we we alluded to earlier, Rambo is a victim and a, a, he's a victim of war in the yeah. first one. In the second and third, he is almost a poster, a child, almost like a poster for recruiting. I mean, the character has changed. Mm -hmm. And Sly himself phoned me one day, he and I talk on occasion, and he phoned me when he was making the fourth movie and said that in retrospect, he thought the second and third films glorified combat too much. And mm-hmm. that he wanted to make a Sam Peckinpah Rambo film. That, yeah, to, that, that pretty much you know, that one. Yeah. It's a different tone, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that fourth one. And he said, I'm going to go back to your novel. I'm going to use nice. the tone of the novel for the fourth one. So we have all these different Rambos. I mean, it's really interesting. You could do a, a, a course in American studies with the films and how they mirror the changes in American culture. Mm-hmm. That's true. That is very true. And so, and you also, you know, got to, as you said before, you also did the novelizations for two and three. Yeah. Now, obviously, like, wasn't there an introduction that you put into the second one that <laughs> yeah. kind of basically just reminded people just like, hey, this is from the movie. And this, yeah. this, this is a continuation. This is not a continuation of the first one, the novel. Was, what was it like doing that kind of well, going this, back this to that? There are some stories there. By contract, I'm the only person who can write a a novel about Rambo that's in the movie contract. And in those days, novelizations were very popular because... I had a bunch when I was a kid. I had so many. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. you couldn't see the movies again. Mm-hmm. There were, VHSs, as they started to come in, were very expensive and very hard to obtain. I, I mean, I think the one from First Blood was $60. This is where the shops eventually, there were, there were places that rented this stuff, first mm-hmm. VHS and then DVDs, but none of that existed. And there wasn't much of a cable market for recent films, maybe on HBO or uh, maybe, I mean, the, the, the Ram movies when they showed on like ABC or NBC, I, I forget which, I think it was NBC. They were all, you know, I mean, there was, they might as well have been musical. Been half hour long, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it was, they used outtakes. I mean, if you, anybody who has that, it, it's like a different movie. Mm-hmm. There are scenes in Vietnam, for example. So they wanted for publicity reasons to have a novelization. Mm. And it would be in bookstores and malls in those days when malls had many, many bookstores. And so they came to me, Andy did, and said, would you do this? And I said, well, well, let me see a script. And and the script was 87 pages long for the second one. Mm -hmm. And it had quotes. These are quotes. Rambo jumps up and shoots this guy. Rambo jumps up and shoots that guy. This is in the, in the jungle scenes. Yeah. And I, so I, got back to him. I said, I, there's nothing here. What am I going to do? Mm-hmm. And in those days, novelization people were supposed to read, to do the novel, to do the script and just add some description yeah. and somehow pad it out. Well, that's not my line of work. So I said, I don't know what to do. I said, Give, I need something more. And he said, well, there was another script. And I said, Oh, really? Mm. He said, yeah, James Cameron wrote another script. I said, Oh, now in those days, James Cameron was not James Cameron. Right. He, he, had, just, not, he had just had, had the time. Exactly. Yeah. And he um, he had done Terminator, but not a lot of people knew it. And I said, let me see it. It's a wonderful script, but it's very dark, very mm-hmm. dark. And it begins with Rambo in a mental institution in the basement behind us, an iron door with bars. And he's knocked out the lights in there. And I'm, who, I'm not sure who will be listening to this, so I'll make this the censored version. The guard says, thinks he's the blank, blank, blank Prince of Darkness. Wow. And and that's that was, and I thought, oh, boy. So I said to Andy, <laughs> well, I do this, but it's, it's going to be one-third shooting script. It's going to be one-third James Cameron, and it's going to be one-third me because Rambo escaped from this place. Now he's being sent back and nowhere in the movie is there any reaction to him going back to where he was tortured. Mm-hmm. So I said, this, this, this. So I used the opportunity and that in the third one to amplify the character. And then to get to your story, of course, the ending of First Blood made sequels impossible, but they finally changed it. And the ending of the movie was more or less the same until they changed the ending so they could continue. Andy said to me, we never had plans for a sequel, but when we had to change the ending so he lived, then we could have sequels. And so I had a problem because I'm going to be writing about a guy who's alive in these novels, but not so in my book. And a wonderful uh, writer, Max Allen Collins, who is known for a lot of things. Uh, he did. He, he wrote a lot of Dick Tracy comic books yes. or comic for, for, yeah. for, for, for newspapers and wrote a road to perdition. Wonderful a graphic novel that became a really good film. Yeah. And I said, yeah, Max, 
I don't know what I'm going to do. I'd like to do them, but, but I can't. And he said, it's very simple, very simple. Just have a note at the beginning that says in the, the, in my novel, First Blood, Rambo dies in the film he lives. And, <laughs> and he said, there you go. That end of story. So that's what I used. Yeah. And, and uh, it was, it's, it's, it's amusing. That's great. It's, it's, it's amazing how just like all it is is just that one little tweak that you can just kind of throw in and that pretty much answers everything. So, yeah. and uh, so, so as we're kind of, kind of winding down, I want to definitely ask really quickly um, 50 years of the character's existence. I mean, that's something that I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around. Cause I have, 30 years of a character's existence of my own, but he's someone who only got like really kind of introduced to the world really just about five years ago. So, mm-hmm. but he's been living rent free in my head since 1992. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm, I'm remind us, tell, tell your audience, tell your talk about the character. Oh, mine. Yeah. Oh, my, ca- my character's name, his, his name is Excelsior, which is actually the inspiration for the, for the name of the show, Excelsior Journey. Yes. But he is someone who is, who is actually, he actually is a demigod in human form who is living through a young man by the name of Matthew Peters, whose name was inspired mm. by my cousin who passed away in 2005. But uh, he was someone who had been writing and drawing a webcomic for about seven years about this character named Excelsior, who is the savior of this faraway planet. He mm-hmm. has no idea until now that uh, that everything he's been writing and drawing are Excelsior's memories, and he's next oh, in cool. line to actually become him. And he's cool. got to do it fast because Excelsior's enemies are growing in power on both planets. That's and, really cool stuff. Yeah, and I've actually just gotten the word since I'm on Clubhouse. I've part of a group called the 529 Club, and they are actually they've given me the green light to turn it into turn that first book into an audio drama. So I get yes. to basically turn this book that took seven hours to read because i also did the audiobook and condense it into a one-hour story wonderful yeah so it's this is a lot of fun i'm having a blast doing uh, it there's a there's a there's a term for this which is meta where this it's a story about stories in a way that's really cool yeah i i love i love this character so much and i'm actually like i've been working for the past four years trying to really kind of crack part three called greater glory which is going to wrap up his whole his whole trilogy but uh, but ever upward the second one was i would say is the best thing i've ever written to date so i'm just like, yep. really excited about that character so tell me when so, it works it's really exciting it really does and that's really what what i want to ask you like once 50 years of this character and it's been working m- much more often than not so like what are your thoughts about its impacts i remember there was a little thing that you mentioned in the documentary that there are four characters that have endured past their liter- their literary origins and that was if i'm not mistaken it was tarzan james bond rambo and what's the fourth one well the, before that the there was one. sherlock holmes it sherlock holmes that's novels, it sherlock novels holmes. and then on sherlock holmes tarzan james bond rambo and harry potter the yeah, people harry potter. going from novels into films mm-hmm. we have to be careful here because indiana jones is equally as famous yeah but he did not come from a novel True. That that he's 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 created particularly for for the movie. So I mean there are are distinctions here, but but it's you know I, I was speaking to Sly one day about all this and 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 we both made the comment that we hear Rambo referred to often in various contexts on the on the news or in conversation or what have 
have you. And, and it takes us a minute to remember because the character been so absorbed into the culture and the name, mm-hmm. uh, which comes from an apple, by the way, that, yep. that they, that, that from, I forget that I had anything to do with the character and Sly said the same thing to me. And then it went, well, then it comes to us, wait a minute. We sort of, we made this happen. Yeah. And so it's, it's a, it's a kind of unreal thing, but it doesn't happen to a lot of authors. And I'm just glad that it happened in a way, if, it, if I'd been very young, I don't know if I could have, when the novel was published, I was 29. I was 39 when the movie came out. And by then I'd had life experience. Yeah. So I wasn't uh, a legend in my own mind. And, and, and we've, we all know people that had good fortune and then suddenly said, God bless them. And they sort of went insane. So I, I try to keep kind of, of a detached view, a professorial view, if you like, to the, to the whole phenomenon. That's one. That's that's amazing. Now, now considering that this month is purely for writers, there are going to be a lot of writers that are going to be, be listening into this. I hope, and I would love to have have you offer one little piece of advice for anyone who wants to get into this. For anyone who sure. feels like there is a story in them that just has to come out in some way, they got to get it out on the page. What is what would you say would be their first step? to make that it's, happen. It's what Philip Class William Ten said to me, to be a first-rate version of myself and not a second-rate version of another author, which is to say, be true to your own vision and don't try to imitate. I mean, the, 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 the world is full of authors that, that imitated other people. And why? I, it, 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 it's just their hangers-on. If you, if you have the vision, then stick with it. It's very hard to do. Um, because there's so many temptations in terms of market to say, oh, well, I'm going to have to. And my second thing is always don't chase the market because you'll always see its backside. And you have to be yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, but it's hard to do. But I, I don't know any other way to, to, to each day be honest and, and try to do the work in a way that I know nobody else could do. Absolutely. That's I couldn't couldn't think of a better a better fra- uh, phrasing for that. A first rate version of yourself. Now, where can my listeners find you on social media? Well, my I have a website. It's a, it's the it's a net website. Mm-hmm. Apparently, there's a photographer with my name and who has the com, but it's davidmorell.net. Mm-hmm. and there's a lot of stuff on it. And especially for Rambo fans, there is a Rambo page, mm-hmm. and there is a very long factual based interview. I, we had all kinds of things we were going to get to and never did, mm-hmm. uh, but we got pretty far. Oh. But but the interview has a lot of it's a print interview and then there are some rare posters and photographs of me and sly and me and richard crenna and richard was a a very very nice man his loss to us is is considerable and there just there's some things on on the on there that i think rambo fans will appreciate on on the rambo page Absolutely. And, and all of those, and those links will be in the show notes here. So that way, that way, if, if people want to keep on listening or reading even more and everything, they'll be sure to just go and click on that link right on there. They'll take them right to it. So terrific. Yeah. And just like David said, be a first rate version of yourself. That is exactly what this is all about. Everyone always says that every story has been told. That's not the case because the story that comes from you has yet to be told. So get it out there. 
allow yourself to just go ahead and tell your story the way that you believe that it should be done and see where it goes from there. So for Mr. David Morell, this is George Soroy saying to all of you, Ever Upward, and I will see you next week. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Excelsior Journeys. I hope it was both inspiring and entertaining. Special thanks to Zach Comtois for providing new music for the intro and outro. Please take a moment to leave a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe to your platform of choice by going to he'sgotit.com slash podcasts. While there, you can also fill out the application to be a guest, inquire about sponsorship opportunities, and click on the Buy Me a Coffee link if you wish to give your support to the show. All interaction is very much appreciated. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion for the show, please direct it to george at he'sgotit.com.